I believe that uh, when we walk in intimacy with the Lord, our whole life changes. Your past, your present, your addictions, your struggles, the things that people have done to you, the way people have abandoned you or labeled you, the things that you have partnered with in your heart and mind, I don't care what they are. Only He has the authority to tell you who you are. We have to ask Holy Spirit to download His heart to our heart. We have to be people who raise their hands and say, I'm here, this is my city, this is my region, it's not somebody else's problem. We have been doing a series called Contextual Revolution. We're taking passages of scripture that are probably super familiar to us and we're looking at them, we're putting them in context, we're seeing if they mean what they actually, what we think that they mean and, um, and, and so we're, we're, we're trying to just learn together, practice studying the word together. We do, if, you got, if you're newer around here, you have, uh, we have a teaching team, and so you'll see different people up here. We love hearing from different people. We love sitting under different gifts. We love that opportunity that we have to learn. And the, the thing that we want to demonstrate is that we, we are not building this, this, this church based on doctrine and agreement only. We still have doctrine. We have values of the word, absolutely. But even the people who are teaching, you might be shocked to find out that we don't always agree on every single thing. And, and that's okay. And we want that to actually be on display as we are teaching because it is not a goal of simply transferring information. It is a goal of activating people to study the word for themselves, to dig into the word, to come to your own conclusions. We don't want to tell you what to think we want to challenge you we want you to think for yourself and if we're if we're creating a model that says hey the person up front is always going to teach and you have to agree 100% with what they're saying otherwise you have to leave or you can't be that's not gonna that's not gonna work for us we want we want this to be a place of freedom where we are digging into the word for ourselves and ultimately what's going to be the demonstration of our value of our of our theology of our doctrine it's going to be the fruit of our life it's going to be the freedom that we display it's going to be the hope and the joy that we display is going to be the expression of the of the fruit of how we are digging into the word and, and, and hearing the voice of the Father through the word. And so um, that's why you'll if you if you're coming here, you won't always see uh, me up here. You'll see a variety of amazing, incredible teachers. Um, I grew up, and uh, let me get my stand back here. Sean was so helpful. He um, I set it up for myself, and then he was being so helpful that he came behind me and he took it back down and put it to the side. So. That's, that's the kind of serving that we love. Uh, um, can I have that water, babe? This is Kate. I'm Ryan. We, we co-pastor this church. I don't know if I gave introductions. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Living Waters. We're just going to do a light topic today. Uh, Matthew 24. Um, oh, groans even. Wow. <laughs> This is good. This means you've heard it too much. Yay! All right. Um, so my story, a little bit of my story. I grew up in an amazing family. I grew up in an amazing church. Um, however, sometimes uh, this church that I grew up in got a little bit infatuated with the end times. Um, maybe with finding out and figuring out who was the Antichrist. Like it was a race. Like I'm... I am going to figure it out before anybody else. We were pretty sure it was Gorbachev, and then I think maybe it was the Pope. I'm not, I, I, got, I got confused after a while about who it was um, or even how to figure it out. But there was, there was formulas, and it was in the back of the Bible. You just ended it. Um, 
we, we, we were, I was scared of like, accidentally taking the mark of the beast. I was, I was, I was certain someone was going to trick me and I was going to have the mark of the beast. I wasn't going to get to go to heaven. Uh, we, we, we were always about the rapture and even to the point where I would uh, have, there was a couple occasions where I dreamt that my family was raptured and I was left behind. Um, speaking of left behind, I read all the books. They were, they were great. Um, I'm, I, I didn't watch the movies, unfortunately, but I heard that they're stellar. Um, but um, about that time, I'm, I'm going to blame everything that I teach you guys today on Perry Atkinson and K-Dove Radio. Um, but uh, about the time that I was 13 years old, Perry Atkinson, who owns a radio station called K-Dove in the Valley, I was listening to, like every good Christian kid should in the, in the Rogue Valley, I was listening to my daily dose of Christian radio and um, being filled up. And he had a, a, a guest speaker on there who was, his name was Gary DeMar, and he was talking about a book that he'd written called Last Day's Madness. And remember, I'm like, I'm hyper Last Day's Madness kid. Um, and, uh, and, and, he, and he was talking about a different perspective of Matthew 24 that I had never, I'd never heard it before. And so I went out and I bought the book from that that listening to that interview, I went out and bought the book, and, and I loved the book, and it really, it, it calmed me down, and it alleviated a lot of fear that I didn't even realize that I was carrying, and it, and it simply gave me a different perspective, and it wasn't even that I said, oh, I, I believe it all. It was simply that sometimes the freedom of realizing that there's different perspectives that are healthy to look at gives us freedom to go, oh, okay, this is, I'm okay, and so that book, I think in some ways, has formed my life more than I ever realized. There's only three three or four books that I would say, oh, that, that really transformed or changed my life. But at the point where I was and the fear that I was living in, under and like I, I was, I need to confess all the time because just in case Jesus comes back while I have unconfessed sin, I don't want to miss, I don't want to be on the squad of people that are here in the tribulation. I want to be gone. And I was confessing all that, you know, that just that thing. And, um, and so this book really, it, it, it's amazing and, and, it, and it helped me and at 13 years old and, and sent me on a path that I think is teaching me to, to, to look at eschatology and this, the end time stuff and hold it with a bit more of an open hand and, and be invitational to other perspectives and other ways of looking at it. And so what I want to do this morning is, is, is I want to talk about that a little bit. Before I do that, because this might be hard for some of you to, to hear some of the things that I'm going to say, I want to I practice receiving truth, okay? Um, so let me, let, let's do a little exercise. Um, <clears throat> so, how many of you have heard that George Washington has wooden teeth? All right, wooden teeth. You, yes, George Washington with the wooden teeth. I'm turning around, so I expect you, yeah, all right. It's, it's like the wave. Oh. <laughs> okay, so um, here's the thing. He doesn't actually have, or he doesn't, he didn't, he's dead, uh, but he didn't actually have wooden teeth. In 2005, the National Museum of Dentistry in Baltimore, who knew that there was such a thing, um, later scans, uh, laser scans were performed on Washington's 200-year-old dentures, and they found them to be made of gold, of lead, of hippopotamus ivory, of horse and donkey teeth. Okay? I'm, yeah, it's amazing. I'm not, I'm not tricking you. I know that there's been times I stood up here and I tricked you, and I apologize for those times. I'm not, 
I'm not tricking you at all. This is true. I researched it. You can research it for yourself. George Washington did not, in fact, have wooden teeth. He had hippopotamus, horse, gold, and, and who knows, donkey, donkey teeth. That's what the other one was. That's what his, his teeth were. So I want to ask you really quickly, upon learning this fact, how, how do you feel receiving it? I, I'm presuming that you feel pretty good. You're like, some of you may feel like you've, your whole life is a sham, but I hope not. Uh, this, <laughs> but you're, you're like, okay, cool. And so next time you're at a party and you're talking about George Washington's teeth, because I'm assuming the kind of crazy parties you all go to, they end up just talking about things like factoids about the president. Um, and so you're going to be there and someone's going to say, oh, yeah, George Washington, he had wooden teeth. And you're going to go, guess what? No, he didn't have wooden teeth. It was actually hippopotamus and horse and donkey and gold. And, and, and people will be just blown away by your knowledge. And so... I'm presuming that you've received this information pretty, pretty easily. Um, I researched something. I stated something. You now believe it, and we have crossed that bridge together. But what if I told you that George Washington had another set of teeth? This is also true. Um, the other set of teeth isn't made of wood or ivory or any of the other animals, that the animal teeth that I mentioned earlier. Um, but this second set of teeth that he had was actually made from the teeth of his slaves. So, let's try this again. How does, how, same scenario, we're exchanging information. And I'm researching this, and I'm not even making a statement to you about George Washington. I'm not making a statement to you about slavery. I'm simply giving you a fact. Did it feel different? in the exchange because one is not about a core belief and another one is about a core belief for many of us we believe that George Washington is an upstanding he's the father of our country he's the first president he's the commander-in-chief our, 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 our view our part of our American worldview is that George Washington is this incredible man and I'm not even making a statement about whether he is or isn't. I'm just saying to you what you believe about him may be different after you have this, have this fact. This is a, a reflex that we have to information that comes into and disrupts our core beliefs. We, we love to have everything organized. We love to have everything together, and we like to keep our life on point. And some of you received the first truth, no problem. Some of you are probably already on your iPhone checking to see if I'm, not, if I'm lying so that you can craft a strongly worded text to me while I'm trying to take a nap between services so I can go preach at four. I'm going to be getting like, ah, oh, no. You're, you, this is that, that pressing up against the, the core beliefs. And we call this, it's called the backfire effect. And and what it means, what, it, what the backfire effect is, is that uh, in uh, USC, researchers at USC, they discovered that our brains are biologically wired to, when we receive information that goes against our core beliefs, we respond the same way as if someone was attacking us physically. So the response that you just felt was actually fight or flight. It's, it's the same thing biologically that's going on is that pushback that's that's happening in, in your mind. And, and it keeps us sometimes from being able to receive things that are contrary to what our core beliefs are. And, and it's basically a biological way, uh, way of protecting our, 
our worldview. And so what does this have to do, what does this have to do with our end times conversation? When it comes to Christianity, this may shock you, but uh, the way that we view end times for a lot of us is fairly core to our, to our beliefs, right? Anyone have core beliefs on the end times? And, or have we all turned into to pan-tribulationists? What is it? Pan, what did we say it was? Yeah, pan-trib people. I'll tell you what pan-trib is in just a second. Okay, so there is one dominant view of the end times currently within church that you would say this is the most dominant view. Congratulations any of you that are, any of you that are visiting today. You picked a great Sunday to come. Um, for the last 100, 125 years, there's been one main view of the end times, and that is futurism. And that means that all the events of Matthew 24, that means all most of the events after Revelation 3, after Revelation 4, um, are all in the future. And some of the things that I'm going to teach you today or that I'm going to talk about today as we look at Matthew 24 is going gonna, is gonna to press against maybe some of those core beliefs that you've been taught your whole life or given your whole life. And so I want you to be aware of that strong response that might just go, he's attacking me, uh, fight, um, to, to simply say, if we're going to be people who learn, we're going to be able to receive facts and, and, and wrestle with them. And maybe you end up disagreeing with me, and that's absolutely fine. Hear me say it from the front. You can be a part of this family. We gather around family. We don't gather around agreement all the time. We want this to be a safe place for people. And you can go, ah, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to wrestle with it. But it might push back a little bit against some of your, some of your core beliefs. And so um, as we're looking at, if you will turn to Matthew 20, 24, sorry, not Matthew 20, 24, but actually Matthew 24, um, <clears throat> I want to give you the, the, the four or the three basic parts of futurism. If you are a futurist, you may have read back in the day a book, you may be familiar with a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, it was written, I believe, in 78 or 79. It has had huge influence on, on end times views of the church and people in the church. Um, for a point of reference, Purpose Driven Life sold, how many of you know Purpose Driven Life, the book? I think Rick Warren wrote it. Uh, 40 million copies that sold. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which is from a futurist standpoint, talking about how the church is going to be raptured in order to avoid the tribulation and that, and that we're going to be drawn out of here and that the, everything's going to turn into a mess. That Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey sold 35 million copies. So it's had a huge influence, and, and he's, not, he's not the only author. There's a lot of great authors, a lot of great theologians and, and pastors and teachers who teach from the futurist state, and that are from the futurist view, and that's fine. I want to I explain it to you briefly. Futurism breaks into three things. Tribulation being what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, what Jesus is talking about, or what is being talked about in Revelation, is how are, is the church going to interact with the tribulation? When is the rapture? When do we get taken out of here? What does that all look like? Pre-tribulation says that Jesus is going is to take away all the believers from the face of the earth before the seven-year tribulation begins. That is pre-tribulation. Uh, Mid-tribulation is, is, this may be shocking, uh, halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years through, the Antichrist gets a little bit crazy, things get worse, and, and Jesus re uh, comes and he takes his church out, and for three and a half years, all hell breaks loose for the, for the remaining three and a half years. Um, and then post-tribulation, this is the belief that the church, we, this belief still uh, believes that there's going to be um, one world government, that the Antichrist is going to rise up, that there is going to be a tribulation. But this belief is uh, that 
the church will be here for the whole seven years of that tribulation and, uh, and will, be, will be protected much like Israel was in Egypt when the ten plagues were, were happening. And so that's post-tribulation. And then I said pan-tribulation. I think this is where a lot of believers come to is that we just go, it'll all pan out in the end, right? <laughs> I, what, what's your view on the end times? Oh, I just, it'll all pan out. And when we're taught all the time and when we're taught in a way that says this is what you have to believe or we read book after blog after movie documentary, 1999 is the end, 1986 is the end, 2010 is the end, this is the Antichrist. This is, when, we, when we get inundated by that all the time and when people teach us in a way that says you have to believe it, line up online, this is what it, revelation means, this is it then we can become a little bit desensitized and we go what difference does it make what I believe about the end times it'll all it'll all pan out and and in a way we take a step back from actually being good at diving into sections of scripture because we simply don't want to get muddy in the process and so this is the the futurist view it's the most common view right now it's only about 120 years old, and it is, uh, it is well-backed. People have taught it well. Scripturally, it is taught well. There's tons of books, tons of lectures that you guys can listen to on futures. And what I want to do today is I want to go back to the early church, and I want to present to you what the early church would have believed about Matthew 24 and, and how that would affect the way that you look at Revelation. Is that okay if I, if I push back on something that's a little bit more current and maybe we go back and get a different perspective on that? So um, let's start in Matthew 24. If we place them in their proper context and, and we realize that this is speaking of a tribulation, it's speaking of a judgment that is coming, but are these events in the future or are they already fulfilled? So, so let's take a look. A lot of people will start when they start talking about Matthew 24. They'll start in, in verse 3 and it says this, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If I jump in on that verse and and I don't tell you what's going on around it, I can make a really great case that Jesus is about to talk about the tribulation, the rapture, the end of the world. But if we back up a little bit, we begin to see a different picture unfold. So what we want is we want to place Matthew 24, since we're doing contextual revolution as our series, we want to place Matthew 24 within the scriptural and historical context that we find it within. And to do that, we have to back up a little bit. If we get confused about what Jesus says, we look to Jesus' words in other places. If we get confused about word pictures or analogies or phrases that he's using, we look to other places in scripture. That's how you interpret scripture correctly. 90% of the time, you just can go, scripture interprets scripture. I, I just made up the 90%, but that's what I find. Um, so, Let's back up to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 33, Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees and he says, listen to another parable. And this parable is about a vineyard that is built, a wine press that is made, a watchtower is built, and then uh, the person, the landlord leaves it. He comes back and he says, I would like rent. I want to be able to, to do this. And they say, no, no luck. And so in, in this parable, Matthew 21, 45, if you jump forward, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. So Matthew 21 tells us what is his audience, who is he talking to? He's telling these parables it is to the pharisees the pharisees admit in matthew 21 45 he is talking to 
us. Now, Matthew 22, continuing in the context, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son, and to paraphrase it, and nobody came, and he was angry that no one came in 22.7. Again, remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. Um, The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. He's not talking about hell. He's not talking about something in the future. He's talking to the Pharisees. They know he's talking to them, and he's telling them a story about them rejecting an invitation, and because they rejected an invitation, this is what took place. This is the kind of stuff that could get you crucified, and it is exactly what did is this kind of confrontation that Jesus was having with the Pharisees toward the end of his ministry. He was calling them out. Then you look at Matthew 23. The whole chapter, he's doing exactly what I just said. Seven woes declared on the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 3, he goes on. He tells them, oh, you, you, you brood of vipers. You sin this way, you've done this. You sin this way, you've done this. This is the whole chapter is this in 23, 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 23, 36. I tell you the truth. This judgment will fall on this very generation. So again, we're talking about something that is that Jesus and the response is putting it right now, right here in this conversation where we find ourselves. And that's the, that's the context of Matthew 24. So that brings us to this. After he has just torn into the Pharisees, over and over and over again, the disciples come to him and they catch up to him as he's climbing up the hill. They catch up to him and they say, Jesus, we, we understand that you're going to destroy the Pharisees. We have no doubt, based on the last three chapters that we just read, uh, we have no doubt that you're, you're talking about destroying the Pharisees, and you even said this generation right now. But what about the temple? What about the, the sacrificial system? What about the old covenant system that is the center of our culture and the center of our lives? Are you going to destroy that too? That is basically what they're asking him in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to, his, to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So that's their question. What about the temple? This is the center of our life. Is this going to be destroyed too? And he says, yes, absolutely. This is going to be destroyed as well. So Matthew 24, 3 then, we can catch back up to where I say most people, or a lot of times people often start. 24, 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately now. So they're, they're, they're coming and pulling him aside and going, you said that the Pharisees were going to be destroyed. You just told us that all those buildings are going to be destroyed. When is this going to happen? That's what we want to know. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in this language, the coming is not his, they're not able to be like, when is the rapture? They have no place, they have no grid for the rapture, they have no grid for the resurrection. They don't even understand fully that Jesus is going to die. They're not saying, when is your second coming? They're saying, that stuff you just talked about, when is that going to happen? And so, They didn't decide to simply sit down with Jesus and have a talk about the rapture. We're staying in context, and we're we're realizing what's going on and tell us what will be the sign of your coming. In in Psalm 18.9, and I could do this all day, there's so many references to coming 
being about coming in judgment. It's not just, hey, we're coming to hang out, but he's using a, a language that is about a, a, a judgment that he, just got, that he just talked about for several chapters, and they're saying, when is this coming judgment? When are you going to come riding on the clouds, as it so, says in Psalm 18.9? That's sort of destructive uh, wording that, that they would have been familiar with as people who were steeped in the Old Testament. So, um, and then the wrong translation, as we look at this verse, <clears throat> when is the sign of your coming judgment? And the end of the age. I want to make sure that your Bible says age. This is important. And you can research this. You can do a word study on this. But this is not the end of the world. This is not the, the, the end of the cosmos is what the word would have been. But they use a different Greek word that at the core of it, it is simply what is the end of the age that is, that is ceasing. What is the end of the age that Jesus would be talking about? What, what is going on in Jesus' life and death and resurrection? What would be coming to an end except that the old covenant is being removed off of people and a new covenant is being placed in its place, right? We understand that this is the backdrop to what Jesus is doing as he is ending or completing or fulfilling and removing the old covenant and beginning a new covenant with his people. That's what Jesus is doing. And so the age of the old covenant, the age of the priesthood, the age of the temple, the age of the law, all of that is getting ready to come to an end when we teach it this way and not from a futurist perspective. And so if you can get that as your context, I can continue to unwrap a different way to teach this passage of Scripture. So we're not, he's not talking about the end of planet Earth. Um, and this is, the, this is really, if you look at Matthew 27, 25, where Jesus is being crucified and all the people are saying, um, his blood on us. Matthew 27, 25, when they said, do you want to crucify Jesus? Do you want Jesus? They said, may his blood be upon us and our children. This is the invitation for what is going to happen in Matthew 24. We will take responsibility for this judgment and for what's, for the, for what's going on. And so um, Matthew 24, 4 through 14, when will this happen? This is Jesus' answer to his disciples. When will this happen? Um, Matthew 24, 5, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and, I, and will deceive many. The question I wanted to ask us with each of these signs that Jesus talks about is was this actually happening at the time? Um, if you guys are familiar with Josephus, you can, you can read Josephus. He's a historian that was alive during the time of Jesus. He records all sorts of accounts, not just of Jesus' life, not just of Christianity, but as a whole of that era and of that time. And what Josephus records during that time is over 120 different men came uh, claiming to be the Christ, to be the Messiah after Jesus. There was 120 different men who came and said, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. This is something that you can look up just like you're going to look up the wooden teeth thing. And um, look up Josephus, read his writings. It'll help you understand so much of the historical context uh, of passages of Scripture like this. And so were there people claiming false messiahs? Were there false messiahs coming out? Yes, absolutely. Matthew 24, 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So wars and rumors of wars. When in the history of all of humanity has there not been wars of rumors of wars? If I was there, I would have been like, Jesus, that's the worst sign ever. Like, 
there's, there's always wars and there's always rumors of wars. How are we supposed to tell? Help us out here, man. But the thing is that we need to understand historically is what was going on in that time that Jesus gave this as a warning was called the Pax Romana. It was the, it was the Roman peace. It was the time in, that, in the history of Rome where they had extended their boundaries. They had put down all, the, all opposition. And for the first time in history, there was no wars happening at all. And everybody looked at, at Rome and said, it is, it, there's no way that this is going to break up. There's no way that this is going to change. And they were living in a, in a history, in a place in history, where there actually were no wars or rumors of wars happening because it had all stopped. And so it would make sense then that you would give me a warning that says wars and rumors of wars during a time where there are in fact no wars and rumors of wars. And during that 40 years from, from 30 when Jesus said this, to, or from the end of uh, Jesus' ministry to, to 70 A.D., um, the wars slowly began to break up, to break out. And, and Israel began to fight against Rome. And Rome began to fight within itself. And, and Jerusalem began to have factions breaking out within it. And that's what Matthew 24, 7 is about. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is, this is happening in 68 AD. Nero committed suicide. There was four emperors in Rome in one year. Israel was starting to break into four different fa- uh, factions of people who were fighting against each other. And nations were coming, were coming against nation. And fighting was beginning to break out. This is what they were taught to look for. There will be famines. Were there famines during this time? Um, and if you look at Acts 11, 27 through 30, you, you, here's a prophetic word right out of the New Testament. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and through the Spirit, he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor from 41 to 54 AD. There was a famine that, that spread during Claudius's reign. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They, as this they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Why did they do that? Because there was a famine that was happening, and it's right there in the New Testament. So were there famines? Yes, there's also rec- records of other famines, but this is one that I can directly point you to in Scripture, saying, ask Scripture about Scripture, and there, sure enough, there it is. Um, Matthew 24, 7, uh, the earthquakes in various places, earthquakes in the New Testament when Jesus died, when Jesus is resurrected, when the Holy Spirit fell, um, earthquake to release Paul and Silas from, from prison. There was earthquake after earthquake after earthquake, and I hate to keep falling back to this, but if you read historical, ta- uh, historical writings of the day, you will see that it was a time and a season with extreme numbers of earthquakes taking place place and that's not something that you have to take my word for if you're curious about this I can give you links and I can give you ways to research that as well but but if you're if you're willing to take my word for it because you know I look so trustworthy uh, there was earthquakes breaking out in in a, in a way that was different than normal and some of these earthquakes that I just listed weren't ones that are simply oh that was a natural occurrence breaking out of prison at a specific moment Jesus rising at a certain moment the Holy Spirit falling at a certain moment. These earthquakes would have been outside of the norm and they would have taken notice of these earthquakes and they would have said, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. And why was that important? Because as we move forward, they're trying to avoid this judgment and this punishment and this outpouring and the end of this age that Jesus was talking about. How, do we, how are we going to be saved from this thing that you're describing? He's saying you will, if you'll pay attention to these signs, you will 
be saved. And so uh, Matthew 24, 9, 9, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. This happened. This was Paul's job. He was, he was traveling around putting Christians to death. This is in, in uh, Acts 8.1. We have Stephen being martyred, and that, that martyrdom of Stephen on that day in Acts 8.1, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and throughout Samaria. And if you read uh, the accounts of Christian persecution under Nero, again, I'll give you more homework. Go look up the, the persecution of Christians under Nero. Look up the fire in Jerusalem and, and, and what happened as a result of that fire and the persecution that was taking place under Nero to the point where you read stories about Christian families turning and hiding and turning over other Christian families so that they could survive and so that they could live. The very thing that Jesus was talking about is that it's going to get so evil, it's going to get so bad that people are going to actually be turning their friends over so that they can survive. And this is what was truly going on in and you can research this for yourself. Matthew 24, 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith, and they will betray and hate each other. Um, and then Matthew 24, 11, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. That's referencing back to Matthew 24, 5, which we already said Josephus uh, documented 120 different people coming out at that time and saying, I'm the Messiah, come and follow me. I'm the Messiah, come and follow me. People will be led astray. Not only that, Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness and love, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Is this being saved in the way that we teach it at our camps, to our kids, to, in churches? Raise your hand and you'll be saved. I'm not even sure if that, that's how it should actually work, but uh, we do it in church. You'll be saved. If you accept Jesus, you'll be saved, right? And we talk about that and we understand we're talking about a spiritual shift that happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Is this, is this what they're talking about in this context? No, in this context, they're, they're, they're truly saying, Jesus, we don't want to die the way that you just described. How are we going to be saved? There will be people who let their love grow cold and they, because of the increase of wickedness, they stop waiting on Jesus on this coming that Jesus is talking about, and they stop being alert and ready. They forsake the gathering together, which is why that scripture is actually taught, not to get you to go to church, but because if we say, don't, fors don't forsake gathering together, because in gathering together, you're reminding one another that we are waiting and watching for these signs that Jesus told us would happen, and we're, and we're watching for them. And, um, and Peter says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Where's this promise coming, that they will ask? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it has from the beginning. And so if I can, if I can lap back on one of those things, that there will be prophets and people will appear and people will be deceived. In the, in the entire New Testament, almost the entirety of the New Testament is written to push back against false teaching that was coming into the church. You can read it for yourself. I'm hoping you are reading the New Testament, but if you read the New Testament, you'll see there was false teaching at a, at a rate like never before. It's, we say, oh, we have false teachers. You've got to watch out for the people on the internet. You've got to watch out for this people. You've got to watch out for that people. At the time that Christianity was being born, there was false teachers at every turn that were trying to take away from Jesus Christ and his death, his life, his resurrection. And so the whole, almost a ton of the New Testament, almost a ton, see how specific I am? Almost a ton of the New Testament is written specifically to combat false teaching. And so we're seeing this taking place, the very thing that Jesus was talking about. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony 
to all nations, and then the end will come. Sometimes this is taught, and from a futurist perspective, it's taught that when we, we the, one of the reasons we do missions work is that when we get to the last person that hears Jesus about the story of Jesus Christ, that we will then be raptured, and that's, what we're, that's why we, we do missions work. If we can go to the furthest place and that last place, and people will be saved, because, because Jesus says that we have to preach the gospel to the whole world, and then the, the, this will happen, the end will come. Again, we're transplanting that it's the end of the world, and it's not the end of the world. We're transplanting that it's the end, and there's some kind of rapture, because it's not talking. There's no, nothing I've shared with you has said anything about any kind of rapture. He's talking about, in context, the end of the age that they asked him about earlier. And this word world doesn't mean the entire planet. It doesn't mean the entire globe. It's not cosmos. It's not aeos. It's not age. It's not world. It's a different root word, and it's the same root word you find in Luke 2.1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so what Jesus is saying is that the entire Roman world, it's, a, it's the same concept, all of the populated area, the Roman Empire will hear the good news about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and not before that, but it will happen and then the end will come. Did that happen before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed? Absolutely. We just talked about Acts 8.1. Stephen martyred, caused such a persecution that the gospel was spread all throughout the entire Roman Empire. And I'm not telling you that so that you'll believe me. Actually, you can read Paul's words in Colossians. He says in 123, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. How can he say that? Unless there's something different in their wording and in their understanding of what they're saying, that Paul would say this, this gospel of the kingdom has gone out to every single person. And he, and he says in Colossians 1.6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And so what I want to offer for your consideration today, as I'm going to stop, because I'm out of time, and I ran out of time in first service as well, so I'm going to stop, and I'm going to pick this up next week, and we're going to finish Matthew 24. We're going to talk about all, I'm sure we'll answer all the questions that you have. But what I want to say is that this form of looking at Matthew 24 in context is asking the question, are the things that Jesus is talking about actually taking place within the timeline that Jesus offered them. Later in Matthew 24, they say when, and he says this will take place within this generation. And we'll talk about that more next week if you guys will come back. The reason I'm teaching you guys this is that it may not matter to many of you, but to me, this matters. I, I lived in that fear, and I joke about it, but I lived in that fear of performance. I lived with the anxiety of having to always be confessing my sin because I didn't want to be caught at a movie theater when Jesus came back because then not only would Jesus leave me, my grandma would probably hit me with a bolt, lightning bolt from above. But I, I lived with that, that religious kind of toxic gut thing in the gut of my stomach that held me from being, being free. And, and simply the realization, as I said earlier, sometimes the realization of like, you don't, have to be, you don't have to look at this the exact same way that I'm teaching it, but the freedom that we gain by hearing other perspectives and going, oh, wow, I want to research that. I want to look at that for myself. Suddenly you have that freedom to go, oh, I don't have to just buy it the way that that guy on the radio said or the, or the preacher yelled at me and told me this is the only way that it is. And so I want us to begin to walk in that freedom. Freedom not to just throw things off and be, be, oh, it doesn't matter, but actually freedom to engage 
and to press in and to use our minds, to use our hearts, to be led by the Spirit, to study His Word with all of our guts and, and just to love the process of learning and stretching and challenging one another. And I hope that this brings just some freedom for people. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid in constantly figuring out who the Antichrist is, when the rapture is. We don't have to look at the news and always be reading and going, oh, does this mean that the end is coming? Does this mean the end is coming? Maybe, maybe, church, we're the news. Maybe we are the kingdom. Maybe we're the ones that are advancing. Maybe there is this revival that was started in Acts chapter 2 that hasn't actually stopped yet, and we're an advancing kingdom, and we should be the ones being dealt with as opposed to living in fear, waiting for the escape hatch to fire so we can get out of here and not worry about it everything that goes on we need to be engaged and we need to be about what's happening here and we need to be paying attention to it and so I just challenge you in that receive it for what it is um, wrestle well struggle well we love you guys um, come back next week and maybe I'll finish it and it'll make some sense all right um, love you have a great Sunday thank you guys for coming hanging out